0: Let's pray. God, this morning, before we continue in a time of worship uh, and preaching and engaging your word, Lord, I want to lift up um, the uh, abused children in this area, Um, those that are in foster care, those uh, who are in the process of adoption, those who are Um, unknown to agencies like CPS that are um, maybe being uh, hurt or neglected. Lord, we want to lift up all of them and I want to ask that you would raise up the church to be the church. Lord, I'm thankful for um, agencies that uh, do their job. But Lord, I, I were burdened for the church to be the church and to be about pure and undefiled and sweet and true religion that properly cares for orphans and widows. Our Lord, this morning, I want to pray especially for those that um, little kids that aren't um, known um, that are being neglected or abused. Uh, Lord, we pray for opportunities to make your name great in ministry to those that need ministry. Lord, in these next few minutes, too, uh, as, as we gather, we want to um, just pray for attentiveness, pray for a faithfulness in engaging your word. Um, this is a high watermark day for the life of this church, and we uh, pray that um, you're enjoyed. Christ's name we pray amen turn to the book of Malachi you may not realize this but Scott and I Scott has preached the last two Sundays from the book of Isaiah you may not realize this but Scott and I are conspiring to build context into this church context for a large part of our Bibles there's some high water marks on the gospel story and those with real rough approximations of dates are Abraham about 2,000 years before Christ, Moses and the Exodus about 1,500 years before Christ, Saul and David about 1,000 years before Christ, and the Babylonian exile six to 500 years before Christ. Those are the high-water marks of the gospel, and what you may not realize is A large part of the church is terribly ignorant about the Babylonian exile and what all goes around that and what happened before that and during that and after that, and why it even happened. So, Scott and I are conspiring. Isaiah preached on the front end of it. Malachi is speaking on the tail end of it after they've been restored to uh, Judah and Israel. Um, It's important to build context for a large part of our Bible, especially in regards to the Babylonian exile. Uh, Without dealing with some of these old stories and these old high water marks, it would be like getting in a car on the last leg of its journey without knowing anything about what happened for the thousands of miles before you got in the car. You're ignorant about the history, ignorant about the story, and in many ways you're really going to be ignorant about where you're even going and how the plan unfolded to get there. So we are working together to build in this context. This morning, Malachi, as I said, is really dealing with after the exile, after the people of God had been restored to Judah in Israel. It's about 100 years after Cyrus decreed that the Jews could go home. By this point, Ezra has rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah is either made a couple of trips home or has made one of them home to rebuild the wall. So the wall is in process, are built by this point. And the Jews are being returned home, and they're moving back into their old homesteads, and they're going back about their business of worshiping God in the temple, the newly rebuilt temple. That's a pale comparison of what it had been before the exile. Now, some special conditions to be aware of that were happening during this period is you need to know that during this time, the book of Malachi, the words that we're going to engage this morning, was a time of drought, famine, and pestilence. It was a time of poverty for the life of, the life of Israel, severe poverty. And it's in this time that God raised up a messenger, a man named Malachi, whose name actually means messenger, who came to deal with, first, the half-hearted and lame worship of Judah. And he's going to do this in what are called disputations, six of them. We're only going to deal with the first two today, and we're really only going to deal with the first one just so we can get to the second one. Don't be afraid of the word disputation, it's just a longer way of saying disputes. The second one that we're going to focus on today deals with the priests in Israel. I need to share with you that I've wrestled with whether or not to preach on the priesthood on a Sunday that we're ordaining an elder, why would we preach on priesthood on a Sunday like this? Because priests are not the same thing as elders, but yet they bear more similarities than differences. Where I landed as I wrestled with this is I considered, first of all, that we're talking about God-ordained leadership. And God-ordained leadership is God-ordained leadership, whether it's before Christ or after Christ. Hosea chapter 4, verse 9 says, And it shall be like people... Like priest, I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And it shall be like people, like priest. As the priesthood goes, so the people go. And the same would be true of the pastorate. As like people, like pastor. As the elder goes, the people go. So it's appropriate for us to consider the pastorate in looking at the priesthood this morning. Secondly, a good reason for us to consider it this, to where this isn't just Scott Sutton Sunday is that we are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. So every single one of us could have a morning where we set aside and we consider the priesthood given that we're all priests. I'll give you a picture of the plan. We're going to look at the problem of the priesthood in the time of Malachi and then we're going to end the morning with God's definition of the ideal priest. Something that you're going to see as we move into Malachi is you're going to see a dialogue that takes place between three parties, between God, Malachi, and the people. And almost every sentence or paragraph or phrase ends with, and God says, or the Lord says. And then there are times where it's clearly Malachi speaking, and then there are times where the people or the priests talk back to God. So let's climb into it and look at the first disputation. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You might appreciate how they might say, how have you loved us? In light of the fact that they just spent a period of time in Babylon in exile. You might understand why they might say, well, God, how exactly are you loving us right now? We've been restored to our homes, but yet we're experiencing drought and pestilence and famine. Hmm. I don't feel real loved. So you might appreciate how they're saying, well, God, how have you loved us? And this is what God says. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Now, the picture here, it may not sound much like a love letter so far, but what God is essentially saying so far is he's saying, see my love for you by what's happening to those not within my special electing love. Look at what's happening to the Edomites, the offspring of Esau, and consider that you're the offspring of Jacob. You're the people of the promise. You are Jacob's people. I have set my love on you. Yet there's a severe problem in the priesthood, and this is where we're going to spend most of our morning right now. The second disputation, beginning in verse 6, the problem of the priesthood is lameness. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. A son takes care of his father and honors his father, and a servant honors his master. But if I am your father, where is my honor? If I am your master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name, God? By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of Hosts. Take that crippled lamb to your governor and see what he says. See if he says, "Gee, thanks, I'm honored." Take that seven-layer cake that your dog gnawed on, that your three-year-old sat on. Take that to your boss tomorrow morning, and see what they say. Ha! <laughs> I'm honored. Take that to your governor. See how he responds. See, the people are bringing polluted offerings to God. Verse 8 is frankly alarming if you take it in. It says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? What struck me is the consideration that half-hearted offerings aren't half-good they're all bad. Half-hearted offerings, you might as well stay home. I I was thinking about this. A three-legged lamb isn't three-quarters good. It's all evil. A blind lamb isn't half good. It's all evil. A bug-eyed lamb is all evil, not less than great. So I'm trying to factor in and understand why is God holding the priests accountable here? What do the priests have to do with this? What you need to understand about this time and about the sacrificial system in general is the priests played a key role in worship. The priests participate in and mediate the offerings of the people to God. So in many ways, the priests are in cahoots with the people in lameness. So God's holding the priests Accountable. They're approving of half hearted worship of the people by accepting their lame offerings to the living God. I was thinking about what this might be like. It's probably been a couple years ago now. We, were, we had a sermon series called the Sacrifice Series from Leviticus. And we met a man named Jacob. He was a fictional man that we made up. And we just kind of considered what this guy might be like a Jewish guy that is having to offer sacrifices day and night all the time. Like I would have to live right next to the temple. As I would always be crossways with God so we, we met Jacob for the first time imagine Jacob Jacob's family's been in exile Babylon for 50 years Jacob's family comes home they're ripped from their homeland initially but they come home to their homestead but now they're poor and they're hungry and they're thirsty and Jacob's just trying to scrape together a living picture this times are hard they're in a recession I can't help but wonder if Jacob was wishing that he was back in Babylon like the Israelites wished that they were back in Egypt. Well, Jacob is making a go of it in the wilderness of drought and famine. He's got a little bitty flock of sheep. Now, most of his flock is made up of just average critters, average weight, average size, relatively unblemished, but not ones that you would say are fine. But then he's got a couple of beauties. I mean, these are beautiful. show Like they're over there at the fair sort of beautiful sheep. And he's looking at them and saying, I got my eye on you. You guys are the future of my flock. I want to hook you up with my ewes so I'll have a beautiful flock someday. He's got hopes and dreams for the beautiful sheep, but then there's the ugly ones. Three or four of them ugly, like three-legged, bug-eyed ones. Ones that he's trying to keep away from the ewes because he doesn't want more ugly. And the problem during this time is this is what Jacob is bringing to the temple for sacrifice: the blind one, the lame one, the sick one. Another passage later on in the passage says, or another picture later on in the passage says, ones that come from violence. This would be one that's like half eaten by a wolf. He's already dead, and that's the one they're bringing to the temple, or he's dying. And the priest was the one who accepted Jacob's offerings. It, it might have gone like this. Hey, Jakob, what's up, buddy? How you doing, man? Ooh, that is one seriously ugly offering. Is that what you want to bring? Well, times are hard, aren't they, Jakob? Let's get it done. Hand me the knife. It might have gone like that. Times are hard, so let's go ahead and get it done. But what should have happened is they should have sent some boys home. The priest should have turned the boys around and sent some boys home. Jacob, this is not okay. Jacob, I know times are hard, but you can't tell me this is the best you got. We're talking about Yahweh here, Jacob. We're not talking about a chump. We're talking about the living God. Get that sorry three-legged lamb out of here. You should be ashamed of bringing that half-hearted offering. Carry that roadkill home in shame. I'll not let you offer to God that which dishonors him, that which dishonors me in the offering, and dishonors you in your worship. Because it's not part good. It's all evil. But what they were doing was compromising. I wonder if it sounded like this. Well, at least they came to church. At least they gave something. At least they give a little bit of their time. I should not accept Jacob's half hearted offering, but I wouldn't want to hinder his worship. And I put quotes around worship because God says it's not worship at all, it's evil. The priest should have called out the half heartedness of the people because their worship wasn't half good, it was all evil. That's a proper priest. When I was reading this and engaging this, I was thinking about a passage that I read in a book called *The Reformed Pastor* by a guy named Richard Baxter. He's dead, long dead, and it's an awesome book. He's writing about the role of the ministry, the role of the pastor, and he says this about the pastor: He says, "Because of our faithful endeavors are so great necessity to the welfare of the church and the saving of men's souls that it will not consist with a love to either—that's the church or the saving of men's souls." to be negligent. It will not be good to silently to connive at negligence in others either. Ah, Jacob, it's okay. Times are hard, aren't they? At least you're here. If thousands of you were in a leaking ship and those that should pump out the water and stop the leak should be sporting or asleep or even but favoring themselves in their labors to the hazarding of you all, would you not awaken them to their work and call them to labor as for your lives? And if you use some sharpness and importunity with the slothful, would you think that man was in his wits who would take it ill of you and accuse you of pride, self-conceitedness, or unmannerliness to presume to talk so saucily to your fellow workmen? Or that should tell you that you wronged them by diminishing their reputation? Would you not say, the work must be done. Take that lamb home, Jacob. That'll not do. We're talking about Yahweh. The work must be done or we are all dead men. Is the ship ready to sink and do you talk of reputation? Or had you rather hazard yourself and us than hear of your slothfulness? This is our case, brethren, the role of the elder and pastor and in this case, the priest. The work of God must needs be done, he says, to call out what needs to be called out. And to not be okay with half-heartedness. The priests should have declared, Jacob, this ship is sinking. And your half-heartedness just won't do. But they didn't. They connived in negligence. Verse 9. Malachi speaks. He says, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. This, as far as I can tell, is the first time that Malachi starts speaking from his own heart. This would be like one of y'all in the church raising up and urging the pastors and elders and teachers and preachers to be true to their task. It'd be like one of you saying, enough is enough. Malachi, this layman, just says, this just won't do. The priests were not policing themselves. They were not answerable to anyone. But God raises up a prophet, a man named Malachi, a messenger, to call them out. And that's exactly what he does. And now God speaks again. God says, With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Right here, God is just saying, I I wish somebody would show up like Jack Bauer. And, you know, when you show up to work in the morning, priest, and you got the key to the temple and you go to unlock the door, the Jack Bauer comes by and he swoops it and he swallows it and he won't give it up for any amount of torture or money or fame. Not going to do it. Don't go in there and keep offering these polluted offerings to me. If only someone would come lock the door and keep you away from my altar. For God will not accept these lame, evil offerings. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For now, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you, you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. God says, he will be great and feared among the nations in spite of you. Even though you offer profane offerings, even though you offer polluted offerings, I will someday bring a priest that brings a proper offering. This is prophetic passage speaking about the future coming of Christ. Verse 13, he says, But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or as lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? What makes the whole thing worse in the fact that the priests are taking these polluted, blind, lame offerings is that they're weary of the whole thing. It seems as if they know it's not the right thing to do, but they're just kind of tired of it. As the people bring roadkill, the homely, and the sick, as they're offering to the living God, they're weary of it, and they do nothing to stop it. I need to admit to y'all, admit to Scott, admit to the current elders and future elders among you, that there's a potential of weariness at half-heartedness. Brad's in his head right now. Probably one of the greatest tolls of the pastorate, is walking with the terminally half-hearted. The terminally half-hearted who will not listen to a sermon. Maybe you can get through to them talking in their home, but likely they'll go for weeks and months and maybe years and never hear that a half-hearted offering is just not half good, it's just all evil. That's heartbreaking. And it can make you weary. I read at first about the weariness of the priest, and I thought, man, these jokers don't know who they're dealing with. And then I thought, you're a joker too, Ben McGraw. Because you get weary sometimes. But weariness in the pastorate due to half-heartedness just won't do ever, ever. Verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what's blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God will not be mocked, for he knows who has the beautiful male in his flock and offers the ugly one instead made me think of Ananias and Sapphira. chapter 2, verse 1, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. The consequences for being a lame priest are curses. Curses not only on them, but curses on their children. Their offspring will be rebuked because of their son or their sin. Their sons and daughters will bear their reproof. I wonder about the condition of tomorrow's church. Are we bearing right now the reproof of a bunch of priests and elders and pastors that didn't step up and do what they should have done? Your offspring will bear the consequences of your wickedness. I spread dung on your faces. God said that, not Malachi. I spread dung on your faces. You'll be carried out with the rest of the dung. Now skip to verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way, continuing on with the problems of the priesthood. You've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi. That's what we're about to consider, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. He says, You've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted a good covenant made with a proper priest. So you're despised and abased. I spread dung on your faces before the people. And then he gets at what I think is the heart of the whole problem you show partiality in your instruction. That may sound like a small deal, but I promise you that's easy to do. You can look at the priest and say, Hi, man, they may not have treated one guy the same way they treated another guy. Maybe Jacob didn't get the same treatment that Matthew got. I'm telling you that's easy to do. It's easy to do in the pastorate. It must have been easy to do in the priesthood because that's what they were guilty of. At one point, the Pharisees came to Christ and they said these words to him. Even the Pharisees recognized this. They said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. In the original language, for you do not uh, pay attention or you're not swayed by appearances, literally, it says, You do not see their faces. I love that picture. It's a faceless ministry that cares about the individual, but does not tailor the instruction to who you're talking to. Oh, you have money? I better not confront you because you might stop giving. If you think that never enters the, the mind or heart of a pastor, then I'm going to tell you that pastor is made of like, he's like robo-pastor. He doesn't have a heart. He doesn't have any flesh either. But a proper priest doesn't go there. A proper priest does not see faces, our checkbooks, our houses, our accounts, our ministries. It just sees people, sheep, God's people. And it presents the full council unadulterated, unabashed, completely and fairly. These priests were seeing people's faces. Ah, I can't confront Jacob. I wonder if this was the problem all along. Had people become big in the minds of the priests and hearts of the priests and God become small? Had the fear that should be reserved for God alone been placed now on a fear of man? I wonder if that was the heart of the matter. Now go to verse 4. Here's what we're going to see about what a proper priest is supposed to look at look like. Here's what God expects of a proper priest and I would say a proper elder He's presenting now what's, what's called a covenant with Levi. We know very little about this covenant. It wasn't presented elsewhere in the Bible. It's just mentioned a few places. This strange covenant of Levi that we don't know the details of. We just kind of know the contours of it. And this is a passage that gives us some shape to what this covenant actually looked like. Pick it up in verse 4. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him... Was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Now, we don't know a whole lot of details about this covenant, but we do know from this that it was a covenant of life and peace, and it was a covenant of fear and awe. I cannot tell you how much that ministered to me, a pastor that's been preaching here for the last seven years, where we have dealt with many a sermon that dealt with life and peace, but yet we've dealt with many a sermon that dealt with fear and awe. And I cannot tell you how many times I've questioned the fear and awe sermons. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people question the fear and awe sermons. How dare you get up in our face over something? How dare you? you call somebody out that something's not appropriate for the living God? But, man, I see it right here in this covenant with Levi. I see the full counsel. I see messages on life and peace, and I see messages on fear and awe. Turn to Isaiah 40. That's a great picture of it in Isaiah 40. The contrast. You can keep your finger in Malachi, too, by the way. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Listen to the life and peace presented in this passage. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. I like that God. Anybody else? Anybody else love that God. Here's another picture of him. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Man, it's a covenant of life and peace. And those are life and peace passages right there. Man, they ministered to me. And... You should know that we are ministers of a covenant of life and peace, one of joy and hope, one of love and comfort and blessing. We do have a message for those that are overcome with hopelessness, and it's a message of life in a blessed other and peace with a creator through that blessed other. But I'm going to tell you right now, I call these the sugar stick sermons. I love them. They're sugar stick sermons. Now look back at Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verse 21. This is the other side of the continuum. It's the other side of the spectrum. It's the other side of the full counsel. A God of fear and awe. A covenant of fear and awe. Because we know while God is love, we also know that God is a consuming fire. He's not just life and peace. He's also fear and awe. Right here in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. It's him. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Just imagine this starlit night. Thousands and thousands and millions of stars up there. God casts those. He brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. This covenant with Levi was a covenant of life and peace and fear and awe, and a proper priest, a priest like Levi, serves up the sugar stick sermons of life and peace. I love those sermons, but also the lightning messages of fear and awe. I love sugar stick preaching as I expected most who preach do, but it's necessary and essential that we preach the full counsel that includes the lightning, that includes the fear and the awe, the end that spreads dung on the face of a lame priest The end that has Achan and his family stoned. The end that has Korah and his family eaten by the earth. The end that has Uzzah dropped dead just for touching the ark. The end that will judge the quick and the dead. The end that cuts away the unproductive branches and throws them into the fire. That end. The end that will separate wheat from chaff and sheep from goats. A proper elder, a proper priest, will preach and teach and herald the full counsel like the covenant of Levi. From life and peace to fear and awe. In verse 6, back in Malachi 2. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. I don't know if there's a better job description of a pastor in our Bibles. True instruction is in his mouth, and no wrong is on his lips, and he's upright walking with God. He's not just teaching it, but he's living it. This one, this sort, turns many from sin with his teaching and his ministry and his life. Verse 7, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A proper priest like Levi guards knowledge and people will seek that sort of priest out for wisdom. He's to be what Malachi had to become, a messenger of truth representing God's message, representing the Lord of hosts. I'm going to end with a excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress, a treasured excerpt as of connecting it to this message. I must admit that I wasn't thinking this, thinking of this immediately, but this connected, and it's beautiful. For those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, you know it's the story of a man called Christian, and it's the journey of faith. It's written by John Bunyan, a guy that wrote Biblish. He was an Englishman, but he wrote Biblish. He knew his Bible so well. Listen to this account. The pilgrim traveled on until he came to the house of the interpreter. That pilgrim is Christian. Where he knocked again and again. At last an individual came to the door and asked, Who's there? Christian answered, Sir, I'm a traveler who was directed by an acquaintance of the owner of this house to visit here for my profit. I would like, therefore, to speak with the head of the house. The individual then called for the owner of the house, who after a short time came to Christian and asked him what he wanted. Sir, Christian said... I'm a man who's come from the city of destruction, and I'm going to Mount Zion. I was told by the man who stands at the gate at the start of this road that if I visited here, you would show me excellent things that would help me on my journey. Then the interpreter said, come in. I'll show you things that will be profitable to you. So he ordered his butler to light the candle and asked Christian to follow him. He led Christian into a private room and instructed his butler to open a door. When that was done, Christian saw the picture of a very serious person hanging on the wall. The picture of a very serious person hanging on the wall. This is what it looked like. The man had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books was in his hand. The law of truth was written on his lips. The world was behind his back. And he stood as if he pleaded with men. And a crown of gold hung over his head.
1: Christian asked,
0: what does this mean? The man whose picture you see is one in a thousand As you see him with eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand and the law of truth written on his lips, these are meant to show you that his work is to know and reveal to sinners things hard to understand. As you see the world at his back and a crown hangs over his head, these are meant to show you that since he's slighting and despising the things that are present because he loves the work given to him by his master, he's certain to have glory for his reward in the world to follow this now continued the interpreter they speaking to a guy that's just begun the journey of faith he says i've shown you this picture first because this man whose picture you see is the only man authorized by the living god to be your guide in the difficult places you may encounter within the way Remember well, therefore, what I've shown you and apply your mind seriously to what you've seen lest in your journey you meet with individuals who pretend to lead you correctly but those whose ways lead to death. Man, my prayer is not only for Scott Sutton but for Ben McGraw and Brad Cardwell and Steve Roberts and Ron Perone and David Ferguson that we would be that serious man hanging on the wall because there's too much at stake too much at stake to be weary with half-heartedness. It's too much at stake to be okay with half-heartedness, which is all evil. It's too much at stake. Let me pray. Lord, this is a special day, and we are thankful for um, for what you have shown us. Lord, I pray a few things in light of this. I pray that that we will be that ship with people who are attentive to your return. That we can shoot straight, lovingly straight with each other because of what's at stake. Lord, I pray that we'll be a people that just won't be satisfied with less than truth. Lord, I pray that we'll be a people that demand read to us from the book. And Lord, I pray that this church will be led by men. who have a command of the scripture and commanded by the scripture. Lord, I pray to be a church that's led by men with the world to our back, with a true message on our lips, and a sweet, deep, strong, abiding affection in our heart. Lord, we love you dearly. We are so thankful for the ultimate priest. Lord, we're so thankful that even in our failings, we serve clothed in his righteousness. We love you Lord it's in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Let me share a passage with you, and then we are going to recognize Scott. <clears throat> and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That's what we're going to do now as uh, Scott, come on up, please. and um, Brad and Ron. And David, Um, Steve is um, sick today, bad sick. He's mortified that he couldn't be here for this day. But this is a special day. We're going to commit Scott to the Lord. With us up here is Ron Perrone, who was uh, appointed as an elder of this church five years ago. And is now uh, serving with C3 in Commerce. And David Ferguson, who's also pastoring with him in commerce. And um, I've asked them to join us this morning in laying hands on Scott and praying for him. Go ahead, Brett.
2: Father, as we commit Scott to you in this office, we uh, uh, pray that you would make him by your Spirit an exhibitor and an enforcer of your word. That he wouldn't just show it, but that he would walk with people in it and lead them to it. And that when uh, weariness and frustration set in, that uh, he would remember your word to not grow weary in doing good ministry. And uh, I pray, God, that you'd make him into a man by your grace that will uh, help to police our hearts and challenge us and speak truth and love to us. And that that would overflow on to this people, that we would be um, leading well because uh, Scott is not growing weary and he's listening to you and he is adamant about truth being on his lips and God I also pray for protection as we mm-hmm. commit Scott to you that when frustration and weariness sit in and we know they will that you would um, grant sleep and rest mm-hmm. when it doesn't seem to be there and that when um, his sin and when the enemy bring anxiety and insecurity That you would help him remember words, the words to remember these Proverbs and wisdom, remember James, and and just know that those insecurities and those anxieties are not from you. That he would be a man that trusts Jesus in front of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, help us, God, to continue to commit Scott to you Mm -hmm. and to follow him. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Stay up here for a second, Scott. You too, Ron. (laughs) Scott, we've got a uh, high-speed, low-drag. Calfskin Skin ESV Study Bible for you. This thing is sweetness. I don't know if you've ever, I think uh, you have had some time with it, but we wrote in the front on the day of your ordination, <clears throat> presented to you from, by uh, Crosspoint Fellowship. Um, May you be, by God's grace, a proper priest like Levi. Reference Malachi chapters 1 and 2. And Ron, I've got something for you. This is actually... Um, We're going to have to do this for Steve next week, but this is Ron Steve's five-year anniversary. Actually, next Sunday is your five-year five-year anniversary of being appointed as an elder, and um, you have—you didn't know that. I I knew that. I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore. Not anymore. Yes, calfskin uh, ESB. Let me make sure this is yours, Um, and it is uh, gifted to you by. Crosspoint Fellowship and Commerce Community Church on your five-year anniversary of your ministry to Crosspoint C3. You served well. Thank you. you. And um, you're going to lead us in Lord's Supper? Yeah. Okay. All right.
1: Malachi 2, verse 6, that he just read, says, um, True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, he's reminded that the messenger has no message without Christ. In uh, Hebrews chapter 7, let me get there real quick, it speaks of Christ as our high priest. He's the reason that the messenger has a message to give to people that is a message that is uh, full of joy, a message that's encouraging, a message that... Um, explains true hope and true perseverance. And uh, in Hebrews 7, it says, 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. If that was our list, we would be those who are unholy, guilty, stained sinners. But Christ is not like us. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's what we're remembering as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And in Luke 22, it says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The reason there's any inkling in any of us to earnestly desire the things of the Lord, to persevere in those things. We no longer bring a sacrifice, but we bring ourselves. Romans 12 says um, that we are uh, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Consider what that means in light of today's message, not to be half-hearted, not to just give part of yourself to the Lord when you come before him and worship. But he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me in the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man who, uh, by whom he is betrayed. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's stand and I'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather this morning and to to know you at all, to delight in your ways, to delight to draw near to you. But I pray it wouldn't stop there. I pray that we would go now and walk in a manner worthy of the call. I pray that we would um, surrender our entire lives to what you would have us do, the way you would have us live. I pray that we would seek to put your glory on display in every single thing we do. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all dismissed.